It's good to see everyone. <clears throat> Today we're going to be reading from 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is a message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, yet we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his words is not in us. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. What a great set of verses. I wish I could just spend the next couple weeks, and we could easily, in verse 5. It is such a loaded statement, and the depths to plumb that God is light is next to impossible to get to behind the meaning of every part about that. But I digress and I jump ahead of myself. I couldn't help but thinking this past week uh, about... Pastor Weathersby's message last week when he spoke about how if you were to take uh, the game of football, uh, how the struggle over inches on the field is taken so seriously. Whether that football is one inch this way or the other way, we have multiple referees, multiple cameras, all these things watching it to make sure it's in the absolute right place. Yet in Christianity, it seems anything goes. Whatever you feel like, you can do this and you can do that. If we, if we have this way is fine and that way is fine, there's no consideration for the Scripture itself. I can point to dozens of churches that do exactly that. They're doing it right now. They are taking and blaspheming God's name, making God a liar, which we'll find in the last verse here, by their actions or inactions that they do every week. Acts chapter 20 would tell us, as Paul says, that he is not guilty of the blood of innocent men because he has preached the whole counsel of God. Which would indicate that those who don't preach the whole counsel of God are guilty of the blood of innocent men. And they will be held accountable for it on the, at the judgment day. So we have to approach this word seriously. The Apostle John certainly approached the word seriously. It's life or death. It's black and white. It's heaven or hell. There is no middle ground. There's no other place to stand at the end. You're either standing in the eternal fires or you're standing in the light of the Lord Jesus Christ. This letter, written later in John's life, we, would almost, we could almost consider him grandfatherly at this time. He's old. He's the last surviving apostle. He's the one who wasn't martyred. He's the one whom Jesus loved, as he said. If you heard me talk about John before in the past, I, I used to be offended by that statement when John would say, I'm, I'm the one whom Jesus loved until I got it. He wasn't saying it out of arrogance. He was saying it out of amazement. That as a sinner such as him, Jesus loved him. Jesus went to the cross for him. Jesus shed his blood for him. That's where John was at. We're in the first letter of John, who, which is a, almost like a truncated version of the 
Gospel of John, written in Ephesus, the end of his life. He won't be with us much longer. It's a letter to believers who had been pagans. Believers who previously had worshipped idols, had previously gone to the temple and participated uh, into the pagan temple and participated in, in, in the various cultic practices that they did there. Oh, I'm certain there's Jewish believers that are amongst that group too, but it's mainly written to them. Uh, we can tell it's written to these pagan believers uh, because there's really no overt references to the Old Testament in this letter. There is no familiarity with the Old Testament that is assumed by who's, who, who's receiving it. All we need to do is look at, and look at, uh, in verse, uh, verse five, ver, uh, chapter five, verse 21, where it says, and I can't wait till we get to this, uh, many months from now, but it says, little children, guard yourselves from idols. That's how it ends. Guard yourselves from idols. Indicating the previous pagan beliefs, cultic beliefs that these believers had before. Their old ways are still pulling at them, much the same as it would be with us. Wherever you were at, at the moment that Jesus came into your life, for me it was in my late 30s, you had X number of years of living a certain way without Jesus. You had X number of years to gain habits of living without Jesus. You acted in a certain way without Jesus. You talked in a certain way without Jesus. You went to work in a certain way without Jesus. And those things have lasting effects. Sometimes it's hard to change the way we acted before. The same could be said for these people. These believers, they had lived in a pagan manner. They had practiced in the, in the cultic worship practices that were in the temple, if it, was in, if it was directly written in Ephesus, we don't know for certain, but we're pretty, pretty sure. If it was in Ephesus, it would have been the temple of Artemis, and there would have been the temple prostitutes, and there would have been the various, uh, uh, the various forms of fleshly worship that went on there. Your friends would have lived down the street from you who still attended those and didn't understand your Christianity, who would have been trying to draw you back into that. Some of us can attest to that too, in our lives, when we became believers, that we had non-believing friends that were trying to draw us back to the way we lived before. It could still be happening with you today. The same it is with these people here. We know that this is the beginning of Gnosticism, that, that idea, that not, the Gnostic belief is, you know, there's the separation between spirit and body. That whatever you do in the spirit, whatever you do in the body doesn't affect the spirit. And I really, this is a 10,000 foot view of there are, there are many, many, many uh, highways and byways in Gnosticism that we could go down. But just understand that it is not fully formed at this point in time. The Gnostic belief won't even happen in its full form until the second century. But you can see the effects that are here. But certainly the beliefs he's talking against or guarding the people against are ones that are at odds with Christianity. Ones that are at odds with Christ following. John is standing guard as that old man. The one who sat at Jesus' feet and learned. The one who saw Jesus nailed onto the cross. The one who saw the risen Savior. The last one of the apostles. The last one of the old guard that was there. The one who is passing on what a lifetime, how he has been gifted with old age and experience. That he's passing on the grace of an old Christ follower to those, to as he'll call them in chapter 2 verse 1, his little children. He certainly loves them. It is a letter that's written not only from the life experience, but love for one believer to another. It's a letter written as one who has discipled many. One who has taught many. One who has proclaimed the gospel as they were called to do to many. One who has suffered persecution because of that. One who has been seen because of his belief in the risen Savior as an outcast. 
one who remembers how he might have spoken so boldly before and incorrectly, but now speaks with the voice of experience and knowing the Savior for a long, long time. One who wishes to pass on the best doctrine he possibly can to those who are there before him. The ones who will receive this letter. It is my hope, my desire that we'll find three things that are in here. Uh, the preview of the three things are, you know, knowing the Lord. It's number one. Walking in the light of the Lord, point two. And the importance of confessing our sin, point three, is what we're going to be in there. This uh, interesting, fascinating letter that John has written. It's said, as Eric read for us there in verse five, and this is, man, you just spend so much time here. This is the message. There is no other message. There is no other thing of importance. This is the one. The only one. This is the message we have heard. And you're going to hear the we throughout this letter. Throughout this section of this letter. We have heard from Him. And we announce it to you. The message we have heard and we proclaim to you. This message is not a message that is understood, and I'm going to be careful here, it's not understood through human understanding. And what I mean by that is, they could understand the words of the message. Much like anybody who is a non-believer can pick up the Bible and they can read the sentences and they can pick out verbs and nouns and participles, if you remember what a participle is. Prepositions, conjunctions. You can understand the structure. You could repeat back what it says and you understand what they're saying. I understand that this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you. But what this message is, is one that is only understandable when the Holy Spirit opens the heart of the dead person to receive the word. This is the word they received, these pagans received. They had to be amazed by it when they, when they first heard this word. It was so much different than what they had been before in their cultic practices of trying to appease gods that are dead. Gods that don't exist. Gods that are made of wood. In, in metal and whatnot, in the, in the foolish practices that went on with those things. But this is the message they heard. The message that the Lord has enlightened them to hear. To when they, I think we'll be surprised. Because I think I said it to myself arrogantly when I became a believer. I have first heard the message. And we might be shown at the end, I have no knowledge of this from the Scripture, we might be shown at the end Oh, that wasn't the first time you heard it. You heard it many times, it passed through your ears. But that was the first time that I allowed you to truly understand it and hear it. But this is what happened to these people. These, these, these believers, uh, the, these pagan believers that, that are hearing it, and he says this, John makes this proclamation that God is light. We can maybe stop there. God is the uncreated light. He is the one who has created all other light. He is the one through that light that life is given. That light that he's talking about reflects so many things that John himself would know deeply and greatly. That just with these limited words that we could almost think that, that John, uh, if he is, you know, as these words are being written, that he could go on for pages and volumes about what this means. In fact, he says so in his gospel that there is so much that he did and had done, that Jesus had done, that, that, that basically that, that the volumes of the world couldn't contain it. You can almost see when he comes up, this is the message I announced to you, and he's ready to go off with a stream of, of, of thousands of words about this message. And he says, nope, God is light. And there is no darkness in Him at all. That encompasses all that there is, uh, uh, that encompasses in great volume all that there is about the Godhead, about the triune God. 
He is light and there is no darkness. He is the light that chases the darkness away. Imagine if, if any of you have had the pleasure of being in this building late at night. You will get to experience the light that changes, chases the darkness away. On a, cloud, on a cloudy night with no moon, if you come into this room late at night, you will see an exceedingly dark place. But take your iPhone out. Flip on that flashlight. And this I didn't say flashlight. Put the flashlight on that iPhone. And all of a sudden it chases the darkness away. It chases, it chases the shadows into the corner. You see, the darkness can't uh, envelop that light. There is no darkness that can envelop the light of the Lord. There is, no, there is no darkness that can take away the life that is through the Lord. He is the light giver, the life giver, the salvation provider, the one through which all grace finds its birth. This message is one then not revealed by man, but revealed by God. It is fascinating, these words, how simple yet how deep they are. That chasing away of the darkness that that light does. That those believers previously caught up in pagan worship and cultish practices were in full darkness. And then their eyes and their hearts were opened like in a darkened room. Some of you may have experienced this when the gospel was opened to you. You didn't realize how dark you were. How engulfed in sin you were until the light of the Lord shone upon your life. Like, like going into that a room, a windowless room with the lights off and then they're flipped on and you're just like this. You just want to cover your eyes because it is almost too much to handle at that moment. But by the grace of God, He allows us to handle it. He allowed them to handle it too. The statement that God is light is one of three terms that John uses for the Lord, for God. John 4, 24, he tells us this. We'll just show you these things. It's just, I'll say something after I read this verse about John. Uh, John 4, 24, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Just remember that John's gospel is not one of the synoptic gospels. Synoptic meaning the same. It's, John's Gospel is different from a different viewpoint that he says. In 1 John 4.8, John also tells us this. He tells us, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So God is light, God is spirit, God is love. These three characteristics of God that he gives us. That there's no darkness in him. There is no death within God, only life. And there's no sin with God, only holiness. Jesus says in John 8, 12, that he is the light. And we could turn there briefly. You don't need to go there. I'll only be there for a brief moment, but it's, hopefully it's up on the... Uh, on the screen, but John eight twelve, where Jesus speaking, he says this, then Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. I mean, what he's saying is that if you're not in the light of, of, of the Lord, you are in the darkness that is death. You are following ways that lead you down <coughs> highways and byways to death. That the life only comes through the light of the Lord. That is the only possible way for there to be. He's reminding them of this message. He's proclaiming that message that we have heard, that you have heard from me. That the Lord is the opposite of darkness. That there is, in fact, He's so opposite of darkness that there is not a shadow that exists around Him. 
we could say, rightfully so, because of this, that there is no darkness on him, that no sinful person can come in his presence. Because to be in sin is to be in darkness. And there is no darkness at all in the Lord. I think we'll cover it a little bit later. In Exodus, where the Lord says to Moses that no man can stand before me. It's because men are sinful. And there is no darkness at all in the Lord. Not even a shadow. Not even a shade. Not even a less bright area of the Lord. He is what we call Lord of Light. So then, point one would be that we need to know the Lord as light. We need to know the Lord as holy. We need to know the Lord as holy and righteous and how much different He is in that regard than we are. We need to know that Lord. And I'll, use the, I'll take the advantage of the season. We don't need to know a Lord as Santa Claus. As just a gift giver. We need to know the Lord as righteous and holy. We need to know the difference between Him and us. Which leads into the next section of the, these passages here. Our second section uh, it's going to be verse 6 and 7. It says here, John says, now remember, and this is uh, here, uh, this is, I'm going to bore you to tears for a moment, but it's important. It's a third, a third person conditional is what we have here, right? And it says, if we say, in other words, we could say it like this, suppose we say, notice how John is including himself in this argument. He's not saying that this is a thing, but he's saying, what if we were to say this? this is my, I've already introduced to you that the Lord is light. That there is no darkness in the Lord at all. The Lord who we claim fellowship with, there is not a single iota of darkness in Him. There is no sin near Him or around Him. He is utterly holy. And then John says, what if I were to say, suppose I were to say this about us. What if I were to say in this third-class conditional statement, he says here, what if I were to say, suppose that we say that we have fellowship with Him. That koinonia, we see it sometimes in older churches, they'll have a koinonia group, a fellowship group. That's what it means in, in, in Greek. Koinonia, the fellowship. What if we say we have fellowship with Him, the Lord of light, in which there is no darkness, yet we walk in the darkness? John's saying, suppose we say one thing and are actually doing another thing. You can almost say this is sort of a warning passage to the people that are receiving this. This is the grandfatherly warning passage. I doubt that John would have written it like this 50 years prior. But he's writing it because he loves these people. He's including himself in this, in, this, in this fellowship that he's talking about. He says, hey, what if we were to say, I have fellowship with the Lord of light, in which there is no darkness, yet I am choosing to walk in the darkness. I have two streets before me, one is well lit, but I choose to go down the other one, which is a very dark alley, and there's maybe a little light that's flickering in the distance. One light shows me all the problems on the street that I can avoid. I can avoid the potholes that are on the street, and I can avoid the cracks in the sidewalk so I don't trip over them. But the other one is so dimly lit that I'll be stumbling down that pathway, and I might fall and hurt myself. We know this one over here, but we choose the dark one on this side. What if we're like that, John is saying? Suppose we do that. He says, I'm going to tell you what. It's a big problem. He says, because we lie and do not practice the truth. We lie to ourselves and do not practice the truth. We could almost, we should probably take away from this, are we putting more practice into following the truth or more practice into our sin? 
You see, it's really easy to get good at sin. We're bent towards it. It's hard to get at practicing the truth because it's adverse to us. When he says practice, he, he means you have to work at it. The truth, uh, to, to practice the truth, isn't, it isn't just dropped on you from heaven. Ooh, the Lord of light has illuminated your darkened heart and He has given you the Word. And perhaps He's put disciple-makers in front of you to help you with that. But you have to work at it. You can't just assume you'll get it. You have to work at it. You see, because I could say it like this. It would say, what you say you mean is nothing in light of what you actually do. What you say you mean, or what you say you, you, you mean, or what you say you believe is nothing compared to what you actually do. Your actions will tell us what you actually believe. If you are actually pursuing sin and you say you have fellowship, that's what John's talking about here, you're lying to yourself. Now, I want to be careful here. Remember when we talked about how you know you might have you might have lived 15 years and become a believer, or you might have lived 50 years and become a believer. That 50 years can sometimes of living a certain way can be hard to get out of your life. It's difficult. The Lord knows that. But we kind of want to see that upward trajectory. We want to see that striving for the light. We want to see that striving for the Lord going after the things that He goes after. To live in the way that He says we live. And when, we, when they, they use that term, walk in the darkness, it, it typically in the New Testament, it's about moral behavior. It's about how you live, your day-to-day -day life. How you live with other people. How you react around other people. What you do with other people. You see, the light and the dark don't go together. You're either walking in the light or you're walking in the dark. You're either tripping down the street or you're on a well-lit path where you can see what's ahead of you. I think there's a, I can't remember the exact, Light on the Path, I think is the name of the book. It was written by a banker who, uh, who desired, I can't remember his name, but a, a banker who desired to, and this is surprising, uh, keep up with his knowledge of Hebrew and Greek. And it's, it's like a devotional book that's broken out that you can go and read. I, I have a copy of it. Now. I think I have it electronically. Uh, and, but it's called Light on the Path. And the light on the path is this. This is the light from the Lord. It lights up our lives. It tells us how we should live. It tells us how we should be. This particular passage is about those who willingly walk in the dark and claim that they are in fellowship with the Lord. And this can't be. One must work at it. It's not passive. And that's at Exodus 33.20, where it says that no man can stand before the Lord. Right? We have that idea that, the, that all are, are sinful, that no man can stand there in front of the Lord uh, because we are in the darkness, we need that we need that light of the Lord that comes from the Savior in our lives, right? So when we dive into verse seven, he corrects verse six and said, "But those conjunctions of the Lord, the conjunctions of the Bible, are so great for us. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, what is the result?" And we'll stop there. Remember, they live in Ephesus, which is by all intents and purposes, a dark place of cultic practices. It is the opposite of light. I think it's been said in the ancient times, there, not only do they say it about Rome, all roads lead to Rome, but all roads lead to Ephesus too. You can do a lot of things in Ephesus that would, you know, would certainly not be Christian-like. The people that are receiving the letter wouldn't know that. Ephesus is a picture of that dimly lit street with, with, with traps and, and, and street thugs and stuff on either side just waiting to jump out. 
as David would say, what Psalm, I think Psalm 17, he would say, or he says it in multiple places, but Psalm 17, he'd say, you know, that, that those are, uh, those are out there like lions crouching. Hidden lions, young lions ready to rend and tear you. You can't see them because there is no light. You can't see what is ahead of you because you have chosen to walk in the darkness. But he says, if you, if we, you and me, if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, as He Himself is holy, if we seek out that holiness, that, that righteousness of Him, we have fellowship not with one another. We are on the same pathway together. We find strength in that unity of other believers. And, what does it say there? The blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Look at Romans 13.13. Romans 13.13. Let us behave properly as in the day. As in the daylight. Not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. Let us behave properly as in the day. Because remember, the darkness is always associated with those things that are hidden. Let's actually live like we know Jesus, that we know that our lives are bare before Him, that He knows all about us, the depths and breadth of our heart, what we truly desire that we should strive and practice the truth, right? We should seek after those truthful things of Him. We should uh, live a life that is seeking, walking in the light that He has given us. We have that guide in, in the Scripture itself. Think to what David says in Psalm 23, 3. Hopefully we're going to be the only church in the area that actually treats the psalm as not just for funerals, that we treat it for what it is, that it is a, it's the word of our Savior, right? And look at what he says in, in what David says in, well, we'll just do the whole thing. Look in verse 1, it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? The Lord is guiding me. He is the one that guides me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. He guides me in the well-lit paths for His glory. He guides me in those pathways because I am His son or His daughter of the Most High God. And that is what's best for me. He guides me in those pathways because He only desires the best for me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, see, we have the darkness, the idea of death is there in the dark shadows. It could be translated in the, in the valley of the dark shadows, which are there. I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, because you are the Lord of life. You are the one that, that lights my path. You are the one that guides me even when it is all dark around me. You prepare the table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. On that well-lit path, David travels. Even though he stumbles at times, he travels on that well-lit path, and he knows that he, that path will lead right to the kingdom of heaven, right to God's kingdom. John here saying that the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. It does not make us sinless, but it cleanses the sin from us. Like the fuller's soap, it takes the deepest, darkest stains away from us. It takes, how do I want to say this? It doesn't prevent us from sinning, but it takes away the punishment for the sin. That precious blood of Christ. So we could say at the end of verse 7 then, that point 2 is, are you walking in the light? 
Or perhaps we could say it, you need to be walking in the light of the Lord, the revealed Lord, because a person that walks in the darkness can have no fellowship with the Lord. We need to walk in the light of the risen Savior. In verse 8, John comes back to that conditional statement and says, if we say, suppose, or suppose that we say we have no sin. Now, we know enough, uh, for those who have been attending here for any period of time, uh, that we can't say that. None are without sin. But, but here John is saying that, there's, that, that, that there could be those people out there, or I've, I've heard murmurs of people out there who have said things such as this, who claim to have fellowship and they say that they have no sin. Remember, the, the blood of Christ uh, takes away the punishment of sin, has, has been that propitiation, which we're going to talk about next week, it is taking away the punishment of sin, but, but it hasn't taken away sin from us. We're always in the presence of sin. You can't go seemingly seconds without sinning in some shape or form. I pray when I stand up here because I know I'm not going to do the word justice. And I pray for God's forgiveness for that. Because I'm a sinful man. Covered in the blood of Jesus. Forgiven before the Lord. Oh, but I long for that day in the judgment seat that the, that the Lord will come for him. That the Lord Jesus himself will come behind and will raise my head. In all that, that shame of the sin in my life. And I will take that away. You see, because if I don't know that, then I'm deceiving myself. We, Roy did a great job talking about this in Sunday school class today. We have that tendency, uh, how do you say it, of, uh, of curling it back to ourselves. Oh, like, I'm better than that guy. I'm not as sinful as that person. We're deceiving ourselves when we say that. I saw a picture this week that it's just, the sin in our lives is like an iceberg. We only see that little part that's above the water, but it's a big, giant ball of ice that's underneath that, that is really the sin in our lives. We're deceiving ourselves if we say that we, that, that we have no sin. And the truth is not in us because the truth says that there is no one that is righteous, no, not one. He's telling them that you, your old belief systems might have have told you that there's a difference between the body and the spirit, and what you do in the body has no effect on the spirit. God tells us, Jesus tells us that, whoa, that's, hold back there, hard charger. <laughs> that's wrong thinking. You, when, when you start thinking in that way, that, that what you do in the body has no effect on the soul, I've got news for you. What you do in the body is taking you down that dark alleyway. Away from the light. What we do in the body has uh, an infinite effect on the soul. It's not in my notes, but, but why do you think that, that, that in the very beginning that God says that uh, the two become one flesh? Right? That act, the sexual act in the body creates a, 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 a bonding of souls that we don't fully understand. But I'm going to tell you what, the world is wrought with the effects of that not being treated seriously. What we do in the body affects the soul. John is warning them. He's saying, listen, you, you, the truth is not in you. Uh, see what I've taught you. Look at the scriptures that you, you might have as they're going from, from, from church to church now. As you might have seen one of Paul's letters, you'll see that that is not the case. It's never been the case that there's a separation between spirit and body. There is no guilt-free sin in Christianity. And I pray for you if you think there is. I pray for you that if you think that you can do things without any guilt, sinfully wise. The Holy Spirit reveals the sin in our lives. 
the Holy Spirit reveals the, the, how far we are in the darkness. We pray that the, that the Spirit would reveal to us the sin in our lives. We pray that the Spirit would tell us uh, about those areas that we have blinders on about in our lives. Uh, we, we, we pray that we are guided in the Word to convict us of those things, that we, we pray to the Lord that we want a heart that is filled with prayer as opposed to filled with sin. Because I can tell you right now that sin presses prayer out of the heart. We need to pray to the Lord about that. We need to be humble before the Lord and our sinful selves. We need to know that He is the Lord of light, the one who will restore us, the one who gives life, the one who lifts the head, the one who guides behind the, guides us to, to those still waters, the one who walks through us through the, the times of persecution. We need to know that Lord. We need to know that the body and the soul are, are, are intertwined in a way that we can't fully understand. That when we look at the, the, the idea of nephesh in Hebrew and the sarks in, in Greek, that, that there is a, there's an intertwining of that, that those, the body and the spirit are, are drawn together. And I know it's true because the Lord says it's true. And I know it's true because if it were true, why do we get new bodies in the new heaven and the new earth? They are intertwined. We are meant to be bodily in our existence. He's warning them against their old ways of thinking that they shouldn't be lying to themselves. And then he says, but in nine. And he doesn't say but, I added that there. He says, if, if we, I love how, I just can't get enough of how John is using the we in this. It is so grandfatherly in this. It is so loving in this. It is so the little children that he's speaking to in this. If we, I'm not excluding myself from this, guys and gals. I'm not excluding myself. But if we, but if we confess our sins, He is faithful. The Lord is faithful. The Lord is the one, the great forgiver. He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is... We could probably, uh, you know, it's a little bit. Uh, we could look at these, we could look at these words and say maybe this uh, might help us to understand it better. If we continue confessing, might be the better rendering of this. Of course, it doesn't fit well. It doesn't sound like good good English. But if, if we just continue confessing our sins, when the when the light of the Lord shines in our life and shows us the sin in our life, if we confess those sins to the Lord, it says. At the moment we confess those sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us. And He cleanses us. He takes away that unrighteousness from us. This isn't once and forever. It's a continuous thing. We need to live a life of repentance. If we, if we see the, the, the progression of, the, of this passage the Lord is light, there's no darkness within Him. If we say we have fellowship with Him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie. But if we walk in the light, as He is, we have fellowship. And to maintain that fellowship we have, we need to confess our sins. I know this, because the Lord says it. Look at Isaiah chapter 59. I don't even think it's up there on the screen. I might have missed that one. Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save. The Lord saves absolutely. There is not one that is beyond saving. Nor is His ear so dull that He cannot hear. There's a catch. Verse 2. But your iniquities, your sins have made it made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear. That's why we come before the Lord confessing our sins. 
We even confess the idea that there are sins that I have committed that I have no idea what they are. I don't even recognize them as sins yet. God, forgive me. Humble me. Oh, boy, rough words to pray. Humble me. Before you. Confess those sins. He, he tells us, and, and John tells us to do that. He says, confess our sins because He is faithful. Let the light of the Lord shine in the darkness that remains in your heart. Let it be illuminated. Don't think that you can hide those sins over here that they won't be, that the spotlight of the Lord won't shine on. Welcome that spotlight and say, yes, Lord, cleanse me. I need the cleaning. Badly. I need the fuller soap. Badly. I need the furnace of the forge. Badly. To take the impurities away. Apply the heat to me. So I can continue to walk in the light. So I can continue to have fellowship with you. And with other believers. If we confess, if we repent, if we admit our sinfulness, He will hear those pleas. He is faithful and He is righteous. What is not being said here is that this act, or this act here of just confessing our sins is not the thing that saves us. The confessing our sins it shows us that we belong to the Lord because He tells us we're supposed to do it. Let that light shine within our hearts so that the sin is illuminated, so that this light will kill that darkness that sin creates on us. Those shadows and those barriers that are between us and other believers, between us and God. We want that light to shine in there, to take that away. And then John closes out his thoughts in verse 10. These closing thoughts. He says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Uh, John handled the, the big picture of this in verse 8 when he says, if we say we have no sin, but now to, to say that there's no sin in us is to be blasphemous before the Lord because the Lord clearly says that we all have sinned. None are righteous, no, not one. Romans 3, verse 10. Starting in verse 10. Romans 3, starting in verse 10. A passage that I know we've been in many times in many areas. You've probably heard it many times in Bible studies, but it says, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together have become, they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They're liars. With their tongues, they keep deceiving, even deceiving themselves. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. These are not people that walk in the light. Destruction and misery are in their past. These are people that are walking down these dark, dark alleys. In the path of peace, they have not known. The path that is well lit. The path that leads behind the, beside the still waters. They don't know that path. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Therefore, to deny sin... To fall back into old patterns uh, is, to, is to slander, defame, blaspheme the Lord. To say that His Word is not true. And way back at the beginning when I did the introduction here, uh, not the book, but when we opened the service up, they said, this, we, we preach the Scripture here. Book, chapter, verse. It clearly says that all are sinners. So we could ask ourselves, have you confessed your sin? Have you gone before the Lord on bended knee? And have you prostrated yourself? Sometimes it's best just to lay face down and, and, and confess your sin. The one, all the ones that come to mind before the Lord. He will cleanse your heart of those things. 
His light will shine upon you and clear that darkness out of you. He will restore the fellowship that has been broken to you. Have you trusted in the blood of Christ in living repentantly for that? So we could say then that the third point is that our we that we are to live a, a confessing life, a repentant life, one that acknowledges that we're sinful, one that acknowledges that we need a savior, one that acknowledges that the savior's arm is not too short to save, nor is his ear closed to hear our pleads to him. So what do we learn? For us to have right fellowship with the Lord, uh, for us to have that assurance of salvation, those words that, that John is speaking to, to, these, to these believers, uh, this letter that is written out of love, that grandfatherly term, and, and I really hope that even saying that, that I'm not uh, disparaging the Lord, even using those terms, but it's the only thing I could think of, just the way it's written, just, just the the care and love of which this letter is written to these believers, that's what it strikes me as. That these words wouldn't have been, that these words that he read in this letter, that he wrote in this letter, wouldn't have been received as, as the, the hammer on the anvil, sagging, but it would have been received that they would, that, that their walk would have been illuminated by hearing these words. Oh yes, this is an area where we have darkness that we need to deal with. Oh, I get what he's saying. He, yeah, we, I've made this mistake. I, I, have, I thought I could play with the dark walk. I thought I could go down those dark pathways. Yeah, I, I get what he's saying. Oh, I'm so thankful that John has written this letter to me. And I'm so thankful that we have this letter for us. This letter of discipleship, the, this, this letter of warning is done in such a way and and so much different than the beloved Paul. I just love the words that we get to next week that my little children, you could just see him. I, you just see that he so wants them to understand this. He so wants them to walk in right pathways. He so wants them to walk in the light. He so wants them in, in a life of continuous sanctification. He wants them to have the assurance of their salvation, the fellowship with the Lord. He wants them to, that one, to know the Lord of light and what that means for their life and for their eternal life. He Then two, he, that, that they must themselves walk in the light. They can't just make a confession and say words, but their, their life must show that walk. Remember what, what you say can be totally undone by what you do. We want those two things to what you say that you believe is demonstrated in how you walk your life. And then to do that, it must be a life that's marked with confession and repentance. And I don't mean the foolish confession that Maybe our Catholic family members do to priests, but I mean confessing to the Lord your sin. Now don't get me wrong, as James is 100% right, that confessing your sin to a brother, a trusted brother or sister in Christ can be very cathartic, but they don't have the ability to forgive you of their sin. The best they can do is point you to the Scripture that says that Jesus forgives the confessed sin. This is the way to assurance. It's our defense against continual sin in our lives. So what path are you on? What way are you headed? There's only two. Light and dark. Are you convicted by the sin in your life? Or do you choose to ignore it? John 3, verses 19 through 21. If I could have, I wish our other pastor was here to just read this because this is one of his favorite verses to go into. 
John 3, verse 19 through 21, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. You know that these people that John told them this when he was discipling them, when their darkened minds and hearts were illumined for the first time by the Lord Jesus, that they knew the truth of this, that they, that they saw the darkness that was in their life before and now it was a lit, lit path ahead of them. It wasn't going to be easy. They had to practice that truth. Verse 20, it says, For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. As Christ followers, we desire the light. Expose those areas of darkness in my life. Make me more like you, Lord. That's what they're saying. That's what he's saying. To live that confessing life. That life that is freeing to us, right? And then he uses those words in verse 21. It says, but he who practices the truth. Again, it's active who practices, who reads the Scripture, who prays, who attends worship, who, who studies the Scripture, who, who fellowships with other believers, who, who practices the truth. Who practices the truth comes to the light. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. I think we see that those, those deeds that were prepared ahead of time for us, Ephesians 2.10, that we find. Seek the Lord's guidance. Seek the light. Seek the light so that sin can be revealed in your life. Seek the light so you can be like David in Psalm 15, which is not up on the screen. The description of the citizen of Zion. I love this. this is a, I, was, I was thinking about this this morning. And I just said, oh, we have to read this. O oh Lord, it says, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? Who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart? Can't you hear this in what John is telling them? He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. This is the person walking in the light of the Lord. In whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own hurt and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. This is the image of one that walks in the light of the Lord. One that has been saved by the blood of Christ, that has been saved by His righteous and His holy life, that has been cleansed by the spilled blood of the cross, that knows that the Savior is risen and sits on the throne next to the Father, interceding for us right now. The one that is on that well-lit path, the one that is illumined by God's Word in Scripture, that well-lit path that goes to the holy city, the celestial city as it would be called, the city of God where we will end as Christ's followers. That is the one that we seek to be. The one that walks in the light. The one that when we hit the end of our lives is running towards the end. Who doesn't lose energy, but gains the strength knowing the Lord is our Savior and we long to be with Him. Let's pray. Glorious and Heavenly Father, just thank You so much for Your Word. It just shakes us to our core. Your Word, the Word that illumines our life, the Word that illuminates the, those dark areas of our life, we, 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 we seek the sometimes painful light that You shine in those areas that we have chosen to forget. We ask that we would welcome that spotlight of Your Word in our lives. That we would cling to that cross of Christ so much that our fingerprints are left in it.
because it is our only hope and is the only hope for the sinner. We ask that you be, be with us throughout this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.